Welcome to Page One. My name is Abhishek Makut. We're joined today by Rebecca Bigler, a professor of psychology and women's and gender studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Professor Bigler studies the causes and consequences of social stereotyping and prejudice among children, with a particular focus on gender and racial attitudes. Professor Bigler has worked to develop and test intervention strategies aimed at reducing children's social stereotyping and intergroup biases. Her work has appeared in top journals in the fields of developmental psychology, including the monographs of the Society for Research and Child Development, as well as developmental psychology. Professor Bigler has also been covered by major media outlets, including Newsweek and NBC Dateline. Her work has been supported by Teaching Tolerance and the National Science Foundation. So thanks for your time today, Professor. Uh, so I wanted to talk to you about what effect racial and gender prejudices can have on a child as they grow up, especially in times like this, where the country appears to be even more divided than usual along racial, religious, and gender lines. It seems under it seems understanding what role a person's childhood environment has on their adulthood opinions could maybe shed some light on how those opinions are formulated. But before we get there, let's start at the beginning. Much of your research focuses on the causes and consequences of stereotyping and social prejudice among children. What would you define as some of these stereotypes and social prejudices? So children develop stereotypes about a lot of social groups really early in childhood. And I can tell you they start, we know, with the process of categorization. So to develop a stereotype about girls or Muslims or uh, religious, etc. groups, you have to make a category for the people. And it turns out that even infants are really talented categorizers. So children come born with really good skills in detecting categories and stimuli. And psychologists have argued that's really useful to get along in the world because you don't have to treat every new stimulus as an individual thing. You get up a category for chairs and you know what to do with them. You get a category for cows and you know what to expect of them. So similarly, you get a category for women and you think you know what to expect of women. So they begin in infancy with categorization and then children look for cues about which social groups are especially important in their environment. And they begin to do this right when they're two and three and four years old. So some kinds of categories or ways that you could categorize people turn out not to be important in the environment, such as whether someone is right or left-handed, someone who ear, their earlobes are attached or not attached, whether they're blue or brown-eyed, aren't things that become important. And children start to detect that oh, in my world, no one says good morning, blue-eyed children and brown-eyed children, or let's have all the right-hand kids line up at the door. But they see other categories look important in their worlds. So it is between the ages of two and four that children develop a lot of social stereotypes and biases, and those are usually connected to the categories that are important in their world. So gender and race, uh, attractiveness, Things they can see are the basis of the first stereotypes. So it turns out children don't really stereotype on the basis of, uh, for example, political affiliation. If you ask five-year-olds what uh, Democrats are like, 
they stare at you blankly. They don't know what a Democrat is because you can't see one readily. Mm -hmm. um, but race, gender, attractiveness, weight are things they can see and they develop stereotypes. So they sort on these bases, um, these dimensions of variation, and then they start to build the content of the stereotype by looking around at their world and seeing what goes with being a girl or a boy, what goes along with being African-American or Muslim or um, uh, attractiveness or weight. And then they start to build this knowledge base. So in the case of gender, it happens a lot because the categories marked, people say, good morning, boys and girls, and what a cute girl, and what does your daughter want? And they mark gender all the time. So the child says, this is really important, being a girl versus a boy. And then they look around in the world and they see men and women don't do the same things. So they're gonna build the content of the stereotype by seeing, oh, when I see someone driving a bulldozer, it's usually a boy. When mm -hmm. I see someone being a nurse, it's usually a girl. Um, caretaking, uh, agency, aggressiveness are all things they can detect in the world. So by the time kids are really three years old, they have stereotypes about gender that include the jobs people do based on their gender, the activities like hockey versus sewing that kids do um, and adults do, and the traits that people have nurturing versus being aggressive, for example. And they can do that with race as well by looking at the media um, and seeing, for example, that whites and African-Americans and Latinos often share different social spaces. Mm -hmm. So a kid in Austin, for example, might drive around their neighborhood and see, oh, white people live over here. White people go to this grocery store. And if I go to another spatial location, this is where there are brown people going to church or brown people going to um, the grocery store. So children come to think race is important. Mm -hmm. So what do people who have skin like uh, pale skin or skin that is darker in some way, what did they do? What are their roles in jobs like? And again, they build the content of stereotypes. So they're really well in place by the time kids start school. They're going to have well-developed stereotypes about race and gender. Um, attractiveness and class is beginning to what, what do people with a lot of money seem like versus people without a lot of money. Um, and then uh, a lot of my work is, so when they know these stereotypes, how do they affect their lives? How do mm -hmm. they affect their social relationships? Mm -hmm. And they do in many ways. So my view is that it's really important to um, think about the kinds of messages we give children about different social groups and their stereotypes and their beliefs because they are going to have big consequences for children's lives. The other really last thing that I think is important for people to know about children's stereotypes is that they are not all based on a kernel of truth, for example. So some stereotypes about race and gender might have a kernel of truth in the sense that the information is coming from the environment and it's true. So if you look at who are nurses, more women than men are nurses. So we have many children who say only girls can be nurses and that has this basis in truth. Um, but two things. One is that children tend to be really more rigid than the world. So mm -hmm. they say only girls should be nurses, only boys should be doctors. And that is, of course, ridiculous, even though more nurses are women than men, men and women can both do both jobs. So that kind of attitude is fundamentally wrong and bad for a child to hold. Um, 
so in that sense, it, their kernel of truth doesn't work. But another sense is that children often just totally fabricate the stereotype. <laughs> they hold many stereotypes that have absolutely no basis in truth. And in my work, what I got known for was putting kids into groups they'd never heard of. So I did a long line of studies over 20 years where we put kids into novel social groups, such as telling them you're red and you're blue, mm -hmm. and you go to school every day as a red kid or a blue kid. And then we looked at children's beliefs about red and blue kids. And the blue kids say, almost all the time, depending on the conditions, blue kids are all smart. We are all good. We do our homework. We follow the rules. The red kids, no. Some of them are bad. Some don't do their homework. Some don't listen. Some tell lies. Um, and none of that's true. It has no kernel of truth to it because red and blue are randomly assigned. Yeah. One group is not any different <laughs> from the other. Um, so we see a lot of evidence in this uh, uh, domain with gender and race as well that children just fabricate beliefs um, about the two races, the two genders, um, people who are more and less attractive based on their own biases right, and beliefs about some of the groups. So when, like, at least what I'm getting from that is that the environment plays a huge role in shaping a, a kid's uh, stereotypes or racial prejudices. But that seems to suggest that maybe a parent has some control, but not all control over what that child will be like when they get older. So what could a parent do in that scenario? Yeah, so parent control is a very interesting topic. And when researchers started studying stereotyping and prejudice in kids, their first hypothesis was that the parents were probably the source of the stereotypes, that the parents must say sexist or racist things at home for the kid to build the stereotype. And what happened over the next 50 years was uh, researchers measured children's attitudes and parent attitudes and matched them up, and they mm -hmm. don't match at all. We now know children do not get their attitudes about race or gender, their stereotypes and their prejudices from their parents. Um, so then the question became, well, why and how does this work and where do they get them from? And we now know part of the problem is children get thousands and thousands of messages about gender, only a tiny number of which come from their parents. Mm -hmm. And most come from the media, from peers, from strangers, from other people, billboards, music, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So a parent has a limited ability to shape their children's attitudes about race and gender, in part because they can't compete with the number of messages from other sources, mm -hmm. right? They can't, they would have to talk all day at their child only yeah. on the subject of race or gender <laughs> and, and still not outweigh all the messages they get from the rest of the world. So yes, the social context is enormously influential in shaping children's views um, and swamps really what parents can do. Now, the other reason for small parent effects though is because many parents don't talk to their children about race or gender or attractiveness or weight and what these things mean and don't mean. That is, we discovered that parents don't have very many explicit conversations with children, especially young children, about these topics. Mm -hmm. And we, when we talk to parents, they often say things like, I didn't know my kid had any stereotypes about race or gender. I didn't know it would be a problem or they, they seem so young. Are you sure I have to talk to them at such a young age? I was going to wait and have those conversations like in middle school, for example. 
So they underestimate how much their children have learned and internalized about race, gender, attractiveness, other kinds of stereotypes from the social world. Um, and they're really not also maybe prioritizing those conversations. Mm -hmm. So often I know parents have a lot of priorities in raising children. You're trying to get them to be you know, nice and not cheat and not hit their neighbors and eat vegetables. And so maybe the conversations related to making sure your child doesn't stereotype African-Americans or doesn't stereotype girls in some way, just don't rise to the front of what you're trying to do with your child when I think they probably should, right? It should be right up there among the kinds of things you should be trying to do. And I think my view, at least, is when parents are committed to having those conversations, they can have an enormous influence on their children's views about race and gender in lots of social groups. But they have to be committed to having the conversations. Mm -hmm. And then they have to be committed to engaging in behavior that matches their beliefs and their values that they're trying to convey. And that's just easily summarized as you have to walk the walk and talk the talk. And what's interesting is we already know that about things like drug use, mm -hmm. cigarette smoking with children, um, parents who say don't smoke cigarettes and then they themselves smoke cigarettes in front of their children have a child who's much more likely to smoke cigarettes. Similarly, you can say, you can model for your child, I'm never smoking a cigarette, but if you never bring up the topic of cigarettes and you don't explain why you have opted not to smoke cigarettes, your child again is more vulnerable to becoming a cigarette smoking smoker. So we know with children, you have to explicitly convey your values, what's important to you, what you think the right behavior is, the right value is, the right path forward is, and then you have to act that way. And sometimes in the case of race and gender, the problem is the parent might have a value that they don't act on. So in a really big study we did with white parents and their young white children, mm -hmm. we found that most white parents didn't explicitly have racially biased attitudes. In this case, we asked about African-Americans. Um, they didn't want to raise children that were uh, endorsing stereotypes about African-Americans or prejudice against African-Americans but they modeled behavior that made their children think that they were prejudiced. And specifically, these white mothers operated in very white worlds. Their mm. friends were white, their neighborhoods were white, um, and the child looked at that behavior, all of my mom's friends are white, and thought, this must be because she doesn't like black people. Mm. Like, that's my explanation. She's never talked to me about black people. She's never explained why she doesn't have black friends. So I'm going to assume it's her intent not to have black friends and that she must not like black people. So it was the mother's social circle there. How many friends, close friends they had that weren't um, white that predicted their child's attitudes rather than anything else that they were doing. So um, it's both walking the walk and talking the talk uh, about your val values related to social groups that seem important for raising children that um, truly appreciate diversity, right? Seek out friends that are different, uh, engage with other people's viewpoints in a respectful, uh, interested way. So you've brought up also that like the role of the media is really important in this. What kind of role does the media take in this world? Enormous. So children watch more media now than they have at any other time in human history. 
which is astounding. I, they're spending many, many, many hours every day looking at screens. Mm -hmm. They are exposed to just countless models um, that are now quite diverse, right? You can see all kinds of people in screens these days, all mm -hmm. colors, races, religions. But many of those depictions uh, follow long stereotypic lines. So still today we see more women, for example, in roles on screens that they don't have an occupation or that occupation is traditionally feminine or low status or low paying. Um, you see more roles overall for men than women conveying their second class status. Many uh, m roles for people of color on television are stereotypic, right? Muslims are in portrayed as terrorists more often than anything else. Mm -hmm. So children see all of those things and that is how they build the content of the stereotype. Mm. What are people of X like? They look at television and build those models. And in the case, for example, of attractiveness, right, the attractive people on television overwhelmingly are the good, the nice, the intelligent, the kind. We uh, mark being criminal with unattractiveness. And again, kids are building this link. It is pretty people that are good. It is ugly people that are criminals. Um, and this includes adult-oriented media, but also Disney movies that just really often mark the um, villain of a story with unattractiveness. Mm -hmm. So um, it's totally understandable that a child would become stereotypic at the age of five or six or seven if they're living in a world right exposed to all this media so i often and this is where i'm often different from the parents um see being a stereotyper as a five or six year old as actually normative there's nothing deviant about a six-year-old who says only girls can be nurses only boys can be brave it's a reasonable conclusion in some ways from the worlds in which they are embedded. So a white child who says only blacks are mean, only blacks are dirty, um, it's appalling to us, but it really is sort of a normal developmental happening given the worlds children live in. Mm. So yeah, a lot, lot of blame to go around actually between the media and parents not making enough of an effort and not uh, enough of an educated effort to raise children that hold uh, beliefs that are truly egalitarian, right? Open-minded, uh, appreciative of, of diversity. Now, what role does the presidency play in all this? So that's a great question. And I think for decades, we would have said probably none with respect to children, because historically, children didn't have a lot of access to information about the presidency. Mm -hmm. um, but that's not true anymore. As I said, children are now just a wash in a sea of media. Mm -hmm. And so in a recent study we've done where we, uh, for the first time, interviewed young kids about the presidential election in 2016, we saw children were encountering lots of information uh, about the presidency, um, the candidates who were running, and had um, reported many things about the candidates' personalities and their views, for example, with respect to immigration. We had lots and lots of children who knew, for example, about Trump's views uh, that characterized them as anti-Mexican-American, uh, anti-people of color, anti-immigration, building a wall was one of the most common things kids reported knowing about either candidate. Um, Hillary doesn't want a wall, uh, Trump does. And that, we believe, is also contributing to 
again, their knowledge of people of color and what they're like. Um, Trump's many statements about Mexicans are criminals, the ones who come here are the worst of society, um, are things that kids as young as five heard and uh, repeated to us. And you would think, just like all the other messages in their world, those become part of children's representations of what are Mexicans like. Mm -hmm. So the presidency, our political structures, all of our figures, celebrities, the sports figures, people that are on television that children look up to especially, contribute to their beliefs. So we, we're talking about how these, these normative kind of abilities of children start when they're ages from two to five roughly what happens when they start going out of that age group let's say they're in middle school or intermediate school and they're maybe 12 or 13 and they have these beliefs are they changeable or are they kind of like already kind of set within them at that point great question so children go off to school right elementary school and middle school and one of the things that prejudice leads children to do is seek out others who are like them so from kindergarten on, girls preferentially play with girls. Their other best friends are girls. And boys play with boys. And their other best friends are boys. Same thing is true with race. White kids, their preferred friends are white kids. And kids of color, if there are enough of them in their environment, their preferred friends are kids of color. So children start to spend their lives embedded, especially in social worlds, with kids who are similar to them. And what then appears to happen is they become more and more similar to each other. You develop the opinions shared by everyone else in your social group. Mm -hmm. You develop the skills shared by everyone else. So one nice study shows that the more girls are preferential uh, towards just other girls in their playgroups, the more girly they become over time. They develop more and more girl characteristics because they spend more and more time with girls. So rather than a girl who maybe hangs out with boys might play more basketball, might engage in more rough and tumble play, might um, develop other kinds of characteristics that are more common in boys groups, that girl won't develop those things if she's not hanging around boys. So that's how the social structures tend to pull apart. We get more and more distant from each other when we don't have opportunities to learn the same skills talk together about topics and see them in different ways. Uh, and I think that is really one of the fundamental problems facing the United States, is this pulling apart, spending more and more time with people that are highly similar to us in race and gender, class, religion. Uh, we then don't, we start to lose the ability to come together without those interactions being very fraught with anxiety and nervousness and misunderstanding um, because we have so little common ground to stand on. We, we know that people who grow up spending a lot of time with people who are different from them have better social skills. They have better abilities to get along with others and see their perspectives. Um, it looks like they have better ability to reach compromise and common ground uh, as a result of a real length of experience and time able to form friendships. Friendships are really critical 
because friendships let you have empathy for someone else's situation. Mm -hmm. So if you're, for example, a male who has lots of female friends, when you hear stories of sexual abuse, harassment, assault, you have a response that's different from a male who has very few female friends and doesn't have those close relationships to build empathetic responses, understanding and perspective taking. So, and we've seen in the US, our schools are more segregated almost mm -hmm. than they ever have been. We've returned to the pre-1950s levels of racial segregation, even mm -hmm. in places like Austin, progressive cities, the schools are terribly racially segregated. Mm -hmm. And that cheats our children of the chance to form close friendships, close bonds, understanding each other's perspectives, families, histories, cultures, languages, traditions, right? They're cheated out of all that by being a, uh, living in a neighborhood that is a single race and then being assigned to a school that is predominantly one race. And that does them a disservice in their lives, but then also translates, I think, into broader societal problems, right? This inability to come together. And I think you're seeing more in that with politics too, as reds and blues, as Democrats and public, uh, Republicans move farther apart, including living in different neighborhoods, different cities, different parts of the country, we lose that opportunity. And that will result, I think, in Im impoverished uh, social skills, sets of understandings, experiences in our lives and in our ability to handle our country's challenges. So that seems like an insurmountable task. <laughs> um, but but how would you how would you solve that then? Because that seems like that would be kind of like restructuring all of society to solve that kind of issue where maybe you'd have to take students from this school and put them in this other school and kind of get them kind of mixing in a sense. Um, but yeah, that would be a change in all of society at its very basic levels. Is that is that what you'd suggest then? Or? I That's what I would like to pe see people work toward. So yes, at the highest level, it means we all need to become advocates for full inclusion and integration mm -hmm. and I experiences um, that we all have where we come together across class, race, gender, etc. Um, but there are things a parent can do. So even if your child attends a school that is predominantly one race or class or uh, religion, you can seek out many, many kinds of opportunities to encounter people are different. So in a segregated city like Austin, for example, you only have to cross yeah. I-35 or go to certain places mm -hmm. where there will be a, a gym, a community center, a museum, uh, a church, uh, something that will serve more people of color than whites. And you are free to attend and bring your child, right? There mm -hmm. are Chinese culture festivals, there are uh, black history and pride events, there are women's history and pride events. And so bringing your child and exposing them to those things is really pretty easy to do. But adults have to go sometimes outside their comfort zone. They have to say to their child, you know, one of the things I don't like about the school you go to, it's wonderful in many ways, but it is just sad that it doesn't have very many kids who are fill in the blank, right? And that makes me sad about the school. So let's go to this place or this event or do, so we can learn and see and grow and meet people um, because I value that kind of diversity. So 
on the one level, it's hard. And then at the other level, it just isn't that hard to make <laughs> friends who aren't all white, I say to white people. Mm -hmm. It's not that hard to make <laughs> friends who are a different sexual orientation, class, or uh, religion you are. Mm -hmm. uh, you just have to go out of that comfort zone and make a commitment to it. The easier path is to be surrounded by people just like you. Um, but as I will say, just the, the rewards in doing that are wonderful, right? Mm -hmm. And we know the richness of your ability to understand the world is better when you have friends who can explain all these different perspectives, all the ways of being human in the world and cultural traditions and backgrounds. Uh, those things have enriched my life enormously um, mm -hmm. because of taking sometimes a risk to go out of your comfort zone to make a friend or learn learn something you didn't know. Now, this might be a little bit out of the purview of the rest of the, the interview, but we've been talking about children, but we also have adults who are growing increasingly surrounded in their own kind of bubble where they hear opinions that are exactly like theirs. Um, you know, a common theme is back in the day, there was four news channels and everybody watched Walter Cronkite. So everybody got their news from the same place. Now you turn on the TV, you can watch the news that fits your kind of opinion. Your preset notion is already on TV. So we can maybe change children's opinions. Can we also change adults? Or is that like out of question? Or is that something that takes more time than maybe with a child? Yes. Yeah, so change is hard. And change is hard for everybody. And I think it has to change. It start often with a will to change. So people who don't want to change are especially hard to change. Yeah. Uh, children and adults are both hard to change uh, about attitudes about race and gender and class and religion, for example. Um, I do think this level of the ability to seek out messages that confirm what you already think is now at an unprecedented level. We've never had media this segregated in terms of the kinds of messages um, that are coming from different sources. And so I, I, I'm, I'm troubled by that because generally it's bad for people to be in the bubble, as you've said, to be surrounded only by the similarity to themselves, because it doesn't make us stretch or grow or see things in a different way. So that is absolutely very concerning. I think, it, uh, and there's some evidence to support that, at the heart of what's going on is fear, that one of the big blocks to reaching out to other people is fear. Mm -hmm. And it is often fear of people of color, fear of immigrants, fear of transgender people, fear of what's different from me mm -hmm. that drives people into that retreat. And then one of the things that's concerning is when people pull apart and get more and more angry with each other is both sides become more fearful, right? The left becomes more fearful of the right and their guns and their anger and their, and the right becomes more fearful of the left and the accusations of, you know, you're intolerant and you're racist and you're terrible. And that makes that group more, uh, you know, uh, scary to uh, the right. And so fear is just the enormous problem that I think is going on. And I don't know how you get, honestly, to get kids or adults to overcome their fear other than to acknowledge that it's there and to pro provide them with some supports. So 
as I said, being around people who have different experiences, language, culture, values, traditions, is going to be anxiety provoking more difficult than just hanging around the people who are like you. And you have to acknowledge that and then say, this might be hard for you. This might make you feel anxious. That will help. And then providing support for doing it. So saying, you know, I'll go with you. I'll support you. Um, It'll be okay in the end. Uh, And I think you have to say that to children as well as adults. And hopefully motivate them with the gain that comes out. So why should I be anxious? Why should I risk being called racist in a in a conversation with people who aren't like me or sexist? Um, why should I make those risks? Le- that's a legitimate question. And my answer is because it will enrich your life. But we've got to make that case strongly and get people to believe it. Um, And it's so interesting, my conversation with you before we started talking, the wealth of your experiences talking to other people. Mm -hmm. I look at you and say, that is so great because it has surely made you a more sophisticated, rich um, person to have, (laughs) to know all these kinds of different people's stories and experiences from all these backgrounds mean you understand the world better. You see it in a more rich, complex, wonderful way than someone who has easy black and white simple views these people are dangerous and bad and these people are good and wonderful Mm -hmm. and so that is just i think wonderful and exciting and must make your life rich and wonderful and cool (laughs) and we have to convince everyone that that's available to them that you're actually safer in the world if you have friends of every size shape color background right Mm -hmm. then if all your friends look like you you're less safe in the world in a way Mm -hmm. if you can't relate to anybody if they don't look just like you and have your experiences So maybe that's some way to say you're safe if you can go anywhere in the world and make friends and Mm -hmm. like people because you can understand them and empathize with them. And I say this as a mother of a child who just went off to study abroad in India. And I thought, how great. I've raised a child who said, I want to go to a part of the world that is quite, quite different from my own. I'm brave enough to go all by myself because I know I will go there. I will make friends. I will learn about the world, it, right? It, mm-hmm. Things I do not know and don't understand. I will come back a richer person with wonderful stories and experiences, more complexity in how I see everything, government, class, poverty, healthcare, social structures, um, because of that experience, Mm -hmm. if we could all have that, the world would be a better place. So this is my final question. What, with this large access to media, to education, to news, to whatever you want, what is a future kid going to look like? I don't think we know. As I've said, I use the word unprecedented a couple of times because the amount of media kids watch is more than we have ever seen in history. What's out there to watch is crazy and unprecedented, right? Children can now be exposed to pornography, beheadings, as well as pro-social video and Mr. Rogers neighborhood reruns, right? Oh my gosh. We don't know much about what they will self-select to see 
because there's going to be a way, right? You can see it on your phones. You can see it in places where your parents aren't there. Um, we don't know enough about what they will voluntarily expose themselves to, what they might hide, like, I'm not going to go there or watch that. And we don't know what consequences it will have for them at, at some level. But I can tell you the preliminary signs are it is making them anxious. You're seeing increasing rates of anxiety in children and early adolescents who are raised with all these screens and all this media. And it might be because they're getting exposed to things that are deeply troubling. And that's a pity. Again, the cost that that generation will pay for all of these freedoms we have and that we've presented them with um, might be very high for them. Uh, so we expose them, expose them to all those troubling kinds of media stories and uh, influences without giving them the assurance that people are basically good. You, you can make friends of all different kinds, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, the social fabric can hold if we will support each other and uh, support socialization processes that make us empathetic and generous and trusting. Well, Professor Bigler, thank you for your time. This was a fantastic interview. You're welcome. Thank you. Professor Bigler and I recorded this episode before both the shooting at the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh and the mailing of bombs by Caesar Syoc to many of President Trump's political opponents. Much of this episode has been about what a Trump presidency means for future generations. In the wake of those events, what did President Trump do? He chose to blame everyone but himself for what happened. He suggested that the attacks were very bad for the upcoming midterm elections. He espoused conspiracy theories about who could be responsible settling often on blaming Democrats trying to gain sympathy. President Trump cannot be blamed directly for either of those attacks. He did not tell those disturbed men to commit the crimes they did. However, there is no doubt that he is indirectly to blame. His rhetoric is divisive and hateful. He continues to lessen the value of a human life, whether it's in discussion about the shooting at the synagogue or with the caravan issue. Midterm elections are right around the corner, and if this lessening of human life is not what we want future generations to believe, then it is important to speak up and out about it as often as possible. You've been listening to Page One. Thanks to my guest, Rebecca Bigler, and a continued thanks to the Page One team. Subscribe to Page One on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or SoundCloud. If you like what you heard, please leave a review. If you have any suggestions or comments, feel free to email us at pageonepod at gmail.com, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter at pageonepod. See you soon.